0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the CDC, osteoarthritis affects 30 million Americans. Osteoarthritis is a degenerative disease that worsens over time. Joint pain and stiffness can become severe enough to make daily tasks difficult.
2: On today's program, we'll talk about osteoarthritis with a Mayo Clinic expert. That's where the body's immune cells, which are there to protect
3: our body from foreign organisms like bacteria, get confused and start to attack the joint, specifically the lining of the joints called the synovium.
2: Also on the program, the importance of blood donation.
1: And we've got tips to get you moving in the new year. All that, along with this week's health and medical news. Osteoarthritis, also known as wear and tear arthritis or degenerative arthritis, is the most common form of arthritis, affecting millions of people worldwide. It occurs when the protective cartilage on the ends of your bones wears down over time. Although arthritis or osteoarthritis can involve any joint in your body, it most commonly affects joints in your hands, your knees, your hips, and your spine. Although the
2: underlying process cannot be reversed, osteoarthritis symptoms can usually be effectively managed. And here to discuss osteoarthritis and how it can be treated is Mayo Clinic rheumatologist Dr. Sriasi Amin. Dr. Amin, it's good to see you again. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: Yep, Dr. Amin, good to have you. So explain the term arthritis to us. I assume arth or arthron, is, I think originally a Greek word, has to do with a joint. And the itis suggests that it's inflammation of the joint. It's more than that, though, isn't it?
3: It is. It is. It's more than um, just inflammation. There is damage that occurs at multiple aspects of the joint. So you've alluded to already that the cartilage is affected. But it is the entire joint, including the bone and the surrounding tissues, including the capsule and the synovial tissue, which is another lining of the joint
2: itself, and then the surrounding muscles and tissues, including the tendons. Is this uh, like macular degeneration, for instance? If you live long enough, everyone ends up with arthritis? Well, genetics does play a role, and um, damage over
3: time to the joints, depending on how you use and abuse your joints, certainly can uh, affect you. So the older you are, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, you are more likely to accumulate those forms of damage, for example. But um, there are people who do very well and have very little in the way of symptoms, although radiographically they may have evidence of arthritis.
1: So everybody's cartilage wears out over time?
3: You know, I, I would can't say we've we studied everybody, but certainly over time, Most that people. is um, a likely effect of just wear and tear over the time uh, and loading over the joints, especially the, the knee, for example.
1: But isn't it interesting, though, that people who have been sedentary their whole life are just as likely, are they not, to get arthritis?
3: Well... You know, there are forms of arthritis even in the hands. We're not necessarily walking on our hands. We are using them. But there's been an interesting relation between obesity and hand arthritis. So there is some suggestion that certain um, molecules that promote inflammation, such as adipokines, might be playing a role. And so that, that needs to be explored further. Dipokines?
1: Adipokines?
3: Adipokines. Yeah. So um, these mark these inflammatory mediators that are... Uh, thought to be related to more adiposity or fat
1: and uh maybe women have more of those than men because this is a condition that's more common in women than men isn't it
3: it depends on the age so in younger years men may be more likely possibly related to sports related injuries harder to say but after the menopause women do have um, frequent osteoarthritis
1: And family history also plays a role, too. If your mom and dad had arthritis, you're more likely to have
3: it. Genetics does play a role, uh, exactly, especially in the um, joints of the hands we find, you know, the the smaller joints near the, the nails, for example. How does
2: osteoarthritis affect a person just on an everyday basis?
3: Well, there's two things we think about is pain and then function, and it depends on the joints affected. So, for example, if you have osteoarthritis in your hands, especially at the base of the thumb, That affects grip and day to day activities. When you think about it, we use our hands quite a bit and we use our thumbs (laughs) particularly. So that can have an effect on just smaller day to day activities such as, you know, squeezing the toothpaste out of your, for your toothbrush, writing, for example, Um, even smaller items like uh, making a meal, for example, or even using tools. And then it, when it comes to even recreation, people have trouble, um, you know, holding a, a golf club or a racket, for example.
1: So pain a problem, uh, stiffness also, loss of motion.
3: Yes, pain is one thing, but function is the other. You're right. So stiffness that can affect them in the mornings or if they've been sitting for a while, we call it gelling, They hard for them to stand up because they're just a little stiff like a tin
2: man, for example. Ugh, the painful sting of recognition. <laughs> does that get any better? Or does it patients who notice that stiffness in the morning or upon getting up and moving around? Well, um, in the mornings, for example, it does improve
3: with activity or Mm -hmm. with movement. So most people will feel that they loosen up after a few minutes, sometimes a little longer. Um, As we get older, uh, I think it depends on how we try to help combat the arthritis and what we can do to preserve the joints. So we can preserve both function but also limit the pain that's associated with it.
1: Does weather affect arthritis? I mean, we, you have had patients, too, just like I have, who say, I can tell when the weather's going to change. Our weather has an effect on my arthritis and how much discomfort I have.
3: I think um, I certainly have that uh, comment from many of my patients, and I believe it has probably more to do with barometric pressure change. So the change in the barometric pressure more than just what it is at, at one static time. Hmm.
1: Diagnosis. How do you make the, di- the definitive diagnosis? And then to also tell us the difference between this most common form of arthritis. I know there's a hundred different kinds of arthritis, but uh, this one and rheumatoid arthritis.
3: Well, the s- diagnosis is based in in part by symptoms, your physical examination of the joint that is affected. Um, Sometimes we are able to uh, add radiographs or x-rays to that, and and sometimes blood tests help us exclude other things. So blood tests themselves aren't part of the diagnosis. So it's symptoms, uh, the examination of the joints, and um, the x-rays sometimes will help.
1: Yeah. There are not any uh, blood nab abnormalities in patients who have osteoarthritis, but there are in rheumatoid arthritis. Correct. Tell us the difference between the two there.
3: So in terms of the difference between the two, as we talked about before, osteoarthritis is more the wear and tear arthritis that we talk about as we get older, possibly related to other aspects of damage of the joint. Whereas rheumatoid arthritis is what we call an autoimmune disease. That's where the body's immune cells, which are there to Protect our body from foreign organisms like bacteria get confused and start to attack the joint, specifically the lining of the joints called the synovium. And then there's production of inflammatory cells that work towards, de- you know, causing not only inflammation that contributes to pain of the joint, but also damage over time to the joint itself and it's fairly accelerated
1: yeah the body attacking itself it's one of those diseases correct. autoimmune
2: correct so it's diagnosed the osteoarthritis is diagnosed through symptoms correct um possibly a scan of some
4: x-ray x-rays Most are, are mostly x-ray just all you
2: okay so but it's also symptoms and x-rays sure. correct uh, uh, what do you do at, at the next point then Once it's been diagnosed.
3: Once it's been diagnosed, then we try to help them with the symptoms that are most bothersome. So pain is usually one of the things that bring people to the attention of the doctor, but also function, try to help preserve the function that they have without causing more accelerated problems over time. And and sorry, I should go back to say when we talk about uh, symptoms, it's also trying to discern the types of arthritis. So we ask questions to help us define what might be osteoarthritis compared to other forms of autoimmune arthritis, what we call inflammatory autoimmune arthritis.
2: I know what else is going to ask. So it's age-related is a piece in there. Genetics is a piece in there. Who else is at risk for arthritis? Some of our patients with autoimmune
3: diseases, even though we mm-hmm. get them under control, because of inflammation, that contributes to damage of the joint. And once the damage is there, it can increase over time. Uh, patients who have had... Um, uh, trauma, so if yeah, they 've had a fracture, injury, fracture through a joint or a trauma through the joint will increase the risk for uh, damage accelerated damage did I is smoking something that makes a difference That's a good question so if you look at studies, smokers in general have a lower risk, and the thought is because they have a lower body weight compared mm. to people, the general population mm-hmm. we've done some studies to show that um, smokers have more pain in their knee. And that has also been shown in people who have back pain as mm. well.
1: Mm. Right. There's never a good reason to smell faggles. Alright, we're talking about osteoarthritis, degenerative type arthritis, with a Mayo Clinic expert, Dr. Shreya Amin. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about treatment options for degenerative arthritis, plus prevention of osteoarthritis. And we've got a myth or matter of fact.
2: Yes, if I develop osteoarthritis, I won't be able to exercise. Is that a myth or a fact? We'll find out.
1: You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio the Mayo Clinic News Network. We are talking about osteoarthritis, degenerative type arthritis, with Mayo Clinic rheumatologist Dr. Shreya Si Myth or matter of fact?
2: If I develop osteoarthritis, I'm going to have an excellent excuse. I won't be able to exercise. Is that a myth or a fact? That's a myth. That's good.
1: All right. <laughs> Newly diagnosed patient with uh, osteoarthritis, degenerative arthritis. What do you tell them?
3: Well, it depends on the joints that are affected, but um, I tell them we need to help them with their pain management if that's one of their main concerns. But also we talk about lifestyle changes and potential ways of exercising that will help them either gain a better uh, body weight if that's an issue, but also exercises that will strengthen their joints and will help preserve their joints over time, especially at the knee.
1: So, really, when you're talking about exercise, you're not talking about so much about strengthening the joint, but you're talking about uh, strengthening the muscles to take some stress off the joint.
3: Correct. That's correct.
1: And activity modification is a big part of it, huh?
3: It is. It is. I think it depends on um, what they're doing or not doing. But uh, we also want to make sure that they're doing their exercises with good footwear, good conditioning, warming up beforehand, stretching after, so they don't injure themselves as well.
1: Swimming's a great exercise, isn't it, for people with osteoarthritis?
3: Water-based exercises for people, especially if they have um, arthritis of their knees or their hips, because that help. It hurts them to walk or to load bear. So, water-based exercises in a warm pool doesn't have to be swimming. They can do aerobic exercises or walking in water. That helps get the aerobic exercise they need to help them with weight loss, but without having to put a lot of pressure on their their joints. Walking exercises, though, on a treadmill, uh, good again with good footwear. Is, is important. What about uh, medications or even supplements? Well, it depends on your pain symptoms and how long they're occurring. If it's short-lived, I don't recommend long-term medications. If, on the other hand, you have pain with sustained activity or even at rest, then we talk about pain management strategies that are safe. Although acetaminophen may be the weakest medication, it is one among the more safe medications as long as it's taken in in the right amounts and not uh, overdosing themselves. Especially we have to think about over-the-counter medications or supplements that have acetaminophen in it so they don't exceed the maximum required amount.
1: So you like acetaminophen uh, better than ibuprofen?
3: Correct from a safety profile. If, if people have Less to use side it, side effects. Correct.
1: Um, Correct. And the, mainly, the side effects uh, with the ibuprofen or the ANSEDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, are stomach-related, bleeding-related. It
3: could be from stomach ulcers or just you know uh, stomach upset. And stomach ulcers are the biggest concerns. But also, it can affect the kidneys. Um, it can also adversely affect blood pressure or it can aggravate hypertension. And we have to uh, to think about other. Um, uh, their blood counts, and we have to watch their, their that they don't have a drop in hemoglobin, that because of occult blood loss that they are even um, not aware of.
1: Yeah, but isn't it true though, uh, the uh, itis inflammation is part of this process acetaminophen doesn't have any effect on the inflammation, whereas ibuprofen does. So uh, theoretically, wouldn't the ibuprofen-type drugs be more effective? They they are
3: more effective than um, acetaminophen in some respects uh, because of that effect on inflammation. So I try to use it more judiciously. So if people do have to use something chronically, I prefer to try acetaminophen first and then use the anti-inflammatory pills over short courses if possible.
1: The, there are the non-prescription uh, ibuprofen-type drugs, and then there are prescription drugs. Are the prescription drugs more effective than over-the-counter?
3: Not necessarily. So the over-the-counter um, doses may be less effective, but we, if we use them at the therapeutic levels, we can have just as good effect as the prescription forms. We just have to remember that everyone responds to anti-inflammatory symptoms just a little differently. So if they fail one, we can try others and see if it's effective for them.
1: Because of the prescription uh, anti-inflammatory drugs, NSAIDs, there are multiple different ones. How do you choose and is one better than the other?
3: I wouldn't say one is better than another, but there are some that are more potent, so they could be more effective than more mild forms. But I think we want to choose one that is safe, tolerable, and effective. And if one is not effective, I move to others. Are supplements helpful? It's a very good question. Um, There's been a lot of interest in looking at over-the-counter supplements, but at present time we don't have a lot of good options. I think one of the more common ones that people have heard about is glucosamine and chondroitin. Current guidelines right now from many societies have not... Recommended their use at this time. Is that right? Correct.
1: Because I thought it was sort of 50 50. You know, there were half the people that helped and half it didn't help, but now you're not recommending it. None glucosamine, of the side chondroitin, correct, sulfate. Correct. All right, and then there are those other supplements on the market, and I'm thinking of Osteobiflex and Arthromax, for example, most of which contain chondroitin and glucosamine. So you're not a big fan?
3: You know, I do talk to my patients about it. They're always interested in finding something that will help them. I give them the option if they want to try it that they want to take it for three months. they find it beneficial, then I'm okay with that. but if it doesn't give them any benefit, I don't recommend they continue it
2: just like any medication
3: or or elsewhere
2: all right so and if those things don't work, then there's there really are surgical options. I suppose you can get your knee replaced, but there's got to, is there anything in between those? Right. So we have other options. So um, in
3: terms of chronic pain management, if we're just talking about pain, we've talked about Tylenol NSAIDs, but there are other medications such as um, deloxetine that is in the antidepressant family, but that has been approved for pain management in osteoarthritis. We also have options of topical therapies. So there are um, topical NSAIDs, for example, like Voltaren gel. Uh, there are capsaicin products, and um, those have been somewhat helpful for pain management. Then we have intraarticular um, products, so one of them being steroids that we can inject into a joint. Um, they may have more short term effects, so I try to use that again in the setting of someone who's had more acute worsening their pain, and we're trying to get that under control.
1: All right, so yeah, quickly, I want to ask you about several different kinds of injections. Does cortisone increase the breakdown of cartilage? It can. Okay, so you use it maybe three to four times a year. You don't want to get a cortisone injection every week.
3: Correct. We try to reserve the, uh, not to use it more frequently than at three-month intervals if we have to, but if it doesn't give long-term benefit, I, I don't like to continue using it.
1: All right, hyaluronic acid, synvisc and hyalgen.
3: So it is approved for the use of osteoarthritis. Whether it's uh, the efficacy, I think, is is just a bit weaker. Okay. The data is weaker. But uh, I do offer that to my patients if we have nothing else that is helping them and they are not interested in surgical options either.
1: All right. PRP, platelet-rich plasma injections.
3: Uh, there's a lot of interest in PRP. The quality of the studies right now are a little um, uh, poor right now. But I, I think there's more Information that needs to be um, accumulated before we recommend that. So I think it's probably more useful in a study situation. All
1: right, the evidence is a little shaky, Correct. and similarly for stem cell injections. Correct. All right, we've been talking about osteoarthritis. Everything you wanted to know about prevention, treatment, diagnosis, with an expert rheumatologist, Dr. Shreya C. Amin. Dr. Amin, thanks so much for being with us.
2: Thank you for having me. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio: January is American Blood Donor Month. We'll discuss the continuous need for blood donors with a Mayo Clinic expert. And later on in the program, tips to help you get exercising in the new year.
1: Don't miss a minute of Mayo Clinic Radio. Subscribe today to the Mayo Clinic Radio podcast available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and other podcast apps. Coming up, the
2: latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
0: Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. You have a big event coming up and need to fit into that great dress. So you crash diet only to gain it all back again. If this sounds familiar, you could be yo-yo dieting. But research shows yo-yo dieting, also called weight cycling, is hard on your heart. Dr. Amy Pollack, a Mayo Clinic cardiologist, says one way to avoid the problems associated with yo-yo dieting is to eat according to the Mediterranean diet, which incorporates fruits, veggies, whole grains, fish, olive oil, nuts, low-fat dairy, and herbs and spices instead of salt to flavor foods. Dr. Pollack says research shows post-menopausal women who yo-yo diet, where they gain weight and lose weight and gain weight and lose weight, seem to be at higher risk of cardiovascular death. So that means dying from a heart attack or stroke. Dr. Pollock says it's not totally clear yet why yo-yo dieting is unhealthy, so more research is needed. But she says they do know one diet that's proven to lower your risk over time is the Mediterranean diet. And in other news, can you train your brain to be happier? Well, Mayo experts say yes. You see, your brain has two modes. One is called the default mode, and the other is called the focus mode. You spend about 50 to 80% of your time in default mode, where your thoughts are wandering, you're obsessing about things, or assessing threats and your personal faults. The remaining time, you're thinking about happy things or new and interesting situations. The 5-3-2 plan can help keep your mind focused on the positive. Five is for five people who can help you start each day with gratitude. So when you first wake up, think of five people you love and for whom you're grateful. Silently thank them. Three is for three minutes to find newness in those you already love. So at the end of the workday or school day, take three minutes to spend some time with someone you love. Really listen to them. Tell them how much you appreciate them and honestly praise them. Two is for two seconds to see others differently. Choose to be positive before you judge or silently wish someone well as you encounter them. Always to help train your brain for happiness. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Millions of people need blood transfusions every year. Now, some may need blood during surgery. Others depend on it after an accident or because they have a disease that destroys the blood or one of its components. Blood donation makes all of this possible. According to the American Red Cross, winter is one of the most difficult times of the year to collect enough blood products to meet patient needs. Busy holiday schedules, bad weather, and seasonal illnesses like the flu can affect donations considerably.
2: Sure, and that's why National Blood Donor Month, which has taken place each January since 1970, is such an important observance. And here to discuss the importance of blood donation is Medical Director of the Blood Donor Center at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, Dr. Justin Kreuter. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Kreuter. It's good to see you again.
1: Thanks.
4: Um, Pleasure to be back. Thanks, Dr. Kreider. So difficult time of the year for you. Absolutely, for all those reasons that you just mentioned. You know, uh, people get sick with uh, colds and flus that are going around. People are wanting to visit their relatives. And, you know, when big snowstorms hit, people can't make it to the blood donor centers to actually give that blood. What does the population of blood donors look like? Yeah, it's going to vary from uh, program and and what the location is. Although that said, I think nationally there certainly is a huge importance in uh, younger donors. So donors in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. 40s to uh, give donation a chance there's a lot of people that haven't even uh, tried to donate blood a lot of people also just assume that maybe they're ineligible and uh, really eligibility is really going to be a local thing you want to call your local blood donor center and find out if you're eligible and if you can come in and donate
2: What are some of the things that would make you ineligible?
4: Yeah, uh, broadly speaking, you know, you really want to make sure that it's safe for somebody to donate blood. So we're really interested about medical uh, conditions, especially somebody's heart. You know, the cardiovascular system is uh, connected and important. Uh, We're also going to be really focused on is the blood safe for another person to receive. So if somebody is taking an antibiotic because they got a small infection that doesn't really bother them, We still don't want to collect that blood because there might be some bacteria then that would get in and be transferred to the patient. And as you know, some of our patients don't really have that strong of an immune system right now, and we could really be putting them at risk. So when we're looking at who's eligible to donate blood, it's are you safe to donate blood, and then is your blood safe to give to a patient?
1: Any other contraindications uh, other than you mentioned infection, someone
4: who's had a recent infection?
1: Who else might not be eligible?
4: Yeah, there's there's a whole list of, of, you know, what somebody is eligible or not eligible for. You know, if you've had a, a recent heart attack, obviously, then we're concerned about your own personal health. Certain medications that uh, a uh, donor may be taking, like finasteride, because that uh, so donor should wait for about a month after taking their last dose, uh, because that could cause uh, defects for a fetus if it was uh-huh. transfused to a mother who's pregnant.
2: Probably the better way to do it is if you're unsure, try to donate blood. And there's all sorts of screening that happens
4: before that ever occurs. Absolutely. So, you know, reach out, uh, either call your blood donor program and ask them some of the questions where you think might put you maybe not eligible and just see or just show up. I mean, this is what we really live to do is find out if somebody is eligible or not. How about a history of cancer? Can you still donate? That's going to be variable based on uh, what center you go to. Uh, so that's a great example of it because that speaks to uh, your own personal fitness for donating. So here at Mayo Clinic, for example, uh, we let people uh, donate if they've had a history of cancer after about a one year for most uh, cancers. Uh, bloodborne cancers like leukemia and lymphoma, uh, right now we're still deferring. Uh, but that's going to be variable.
2: I'm going to live long enough so that someday you'll be able to say, yeah, we'll take your blood too, Tracy. <laughs> well, that's what I'm hoping you for.
4: You <laughs> Yeah, because I have lymphoma. lymphoma. Mm-hmm. Really?
2: It's been 30 years, but I'm going to stick it out, I swear. And you're the person that we're targeting <laughs> I, for. <laughs> that's good. What happens to the blood after it's donated?
4: When you donate blood, uh, we're going to take that uh, donation, we're going to process it into a blood unit that gets transfused to a patient. So we do a little bit of manipulation in the back room. We also send off some testing for some of the common uh, concerning infectious diseases like HIV, hepatitis B and C. Uh, and uh, we wait for the infectious testing to come back. Once that's uh, back and negative, then we can put a label on it and ship it out to uh, the hospitals to use. Does the amount of blood that uh, you need vary with the seasons it does it it varies by season so we see uh uh, you know peaks and valleys throughout the year some of it's predictable but then on a day-to-day basis there's also quite a lot of variability and that kind of highlights that, you know, sometimes, uh, tragedies can strike in our communities, either, uh, weather related or, or otherwise. And, uh, it's really the people that came in and donated recently in the past few days that are going to have that blood on the shelf for the patients that are in need. What's the shelf life of that blood? In general, uh, red cells are uh, good on the shelf for 42 days. Uh, platelets are good on the shelf for five days. Plasma we can, uh, freeze, uh, for a full year. And, uh, so I guess, uh, how, how we monitor the, the inventory of blood, it's a little bit like having milk. I know Dr. Shives uh, likes uh, Raisin Bran for breakfast in the morning. <laughs> How'd you know that? So I'm guessing you probably like to have milk with your Raisin Bran. Uh, so you like milk to be in your fridge, but you also don't like your milk uh, curdled. I bet.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
4: so just keep the
2: look, uh, keep a lookout on that date, that expiration date.
4: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you can't you freeze have milk it. Yeah. You can't freeze blood though, huh? Just the plasma? Oh, uh, we can freeze uh, red cells, uh, but okay. we that's. Um, that is a very intensive process and we also lose some of that blood product in the process. So we do that for rare, uh, blood units. And I, how often can you donate? How long, how long does it take you to recover between donations? That's, that's an excellent question. That really gets at something that the blood donor community, uh, we're wrestling with right now. So uh, in the United States, you can donate every eight weeks. Uh, but there's a real concern about preserving and protecting the iron stores of our blood donors and so that's undergoing a lot of debate we might see that changing in the future longer or shorter for longer, longer yeah. yeah yeah
2: i just have to say and i know i've probably shared this in the past but um just as we referenced the lymphoma when i was going through my treatment i had to have a transfusion mm-hmm. and it is amazing how much better I felt just a few moments after that transfusion happened.
4: That and worth?
2: so if anyone is listening and on the fence about whether they should donate or not, yes, for accidents, yes, for surgeries, but also, um, you know, patients that need transfusions, it makes a huge difference, life-saving and just quality of life.
4: You know, recently I was at my uh, daughter's school talking mm-hmm. about blood donation, and it was wonderful to see the masterful uh, teacher uh, talk to the kids about, you know, oh, do you think uh, that it hurts when you get a needle? And you know, all the kids, oh, yeah. And, and how long does that needle prick uh, hurt for? And the kids are, oh, a short period of time. And she said, you know, do you think people that are sick in the hospital, or do you think they hurt? And the kids said, yeah. And they said, how long do you think they hurt for? A long time. Yeah. And it just kind of goes to show I think there's a lot of people that are, have a fear of needles or they don't like the pain, but that little bit of uh, pain that we take does result in a very meaningful and significant immediate difference for a patient in need. Absolutely. How old do you have to be to donate blood? So, uh. You, you didn't get all those fifth graders into the blood donation center, <laughs> did you? No, but I'm hopefully making future blood donors Good out for of you. them. <laughs> so you have to be at least uh, 17, and in some states, uh, you can be 16. 16. But again, that's another area where uh, we're really uh, particularly concerned about wanting to preserve the iron status of, in particular, our younger donors. So that's something that, that's what's on the books right now, but that might change in the future.
1: Well, it's Blood Donor Month. Thanks for helping us get the word out. And whoever donated that unit of blood for Tracy, you made her feel better. That's right. Um, All right. Blood Donation Month with the medical director of the Blood Donor Center at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, Dr. Justin Kreider. Thanks so much for being with us, Dr. Kreider. Thank you for having me. When we come back, it's New Year's resolution time. If exercise is
2: on your list, we've got tips to get you moving.
1: You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. Well, the holidays are over. Are you happy about that? Thank goodness. (laughs) (laughs) It's back to the routine, normal activities. And for a lot of us, we've set some goals for the new year, and getting fit and losing weight are often high on the list of people's New Year's resolutions. Now, whether your goal is weight loss or just feeling better and being healthier, adding activity to your day will help get you there. Here's the
2: million-dollar question.
1: How do you get started? Well, we're going to find out.
2: Yeah. How do you stay motivated and avoid the common pitfalls? Here to offer tips to help you get moving is Mayo Clinic Healthy Living Program wellness specialist, Tom Rick. Welcome to the program, Thomas. Nice to meet you. You
5: too. Thank you so much for having me.
1: You know, this the Healthy Dan Living Center is a pretty incredible place. Dan Abraham was a patient here and donated a significant uh, portion of the money required to build this facility, right? Mm -hmm. If you're someone
2: who's newly retired from being a surgeon, you can (laughs) hang out there more (laughs) often than you do. Getting people started, though, I think is the first time is always easy because you're all excited. You're going to start this new thing. But then maybe the second time is when the wheels fall off.
5: Correct. And I think what we do is we set ourselves up for a little bit of failure. So the new year rolls around. And we start with these big, huge, audacious goals that I want to lose 500 pounds in the next two weeks. And, of course, that's not realistic. I tell people we start very small, and we get that goal, or we try an experiment, and we learn from that, and then we rack it up a little bit for the next portion. So I even had one client that said, I have a one-pound weight loss goal. And I said, one pound? I mean, you know who you're hiring here, right? (laughs) And she said, well, I know because I've failed so many other times That if I start really small with this (laughs) one-pound goal, which seems ridiculous, (laughs) but she knows it's something that's achievable, and then, you know, maybe it's the next couple weeks, I can say, okay, now I'm going to go for two pounds and work my way up from there. So making sure that we don't have too big of a goal to start off with seems to help.
2: That's exactly what I was going to ask you. Give an example of a small goal. And you could always just say, I've got a one-pound goal, and you just continue
5: to have a one-pound goal. You got it. Yep. And I just keep adding, you know, Mm -hmm. next week it's another one-pound goal. Any
2: other suggestions for small goals that people could consider? Sure.
5: So I always ask people, say, well, you know, how much time do you have to devote for exercise? And they say, well, I've got 90 minutes every single day. And I go, really? Do you live in that wonderful world that we all dream about? (laughs) Of course not. And I say, well, what if we start with a third of that? Let's start with 30 minutes. And then I counsel them and say, well, if you can't make 30 minutes today... 29 minutes is still pretty good. And if, mm-hmm. 20, if 29 doesn't work, 28 is still pretty good there. And so maybe it only becomes, I can I can only make it for five minutes today. And just knowing that that little bit of five-minute movement is going to be beneficial much more than if you just said, skip it, and I'm going to go sit on the couch instead.
1: When somebody first comes to you, someone new,
5: how do you approach the, the first meeting? Sure. So we do quite a big intake when people come through our program at the Healthy Living Center. We also work with wellness coaches. So that's a really nice person to have kind of in your corner and their kind of approach to health and fitness is much different than most people's because They're not telling you what to do. So I come from the, I'm going to tell you what to do after we find out a little bit about you. And they say, well, what is your goal and how can I help you achieve that? And so we do a lot of different assessments to give people a good baseline. And I always counsel people say, you know, take a look at the scale, take a look at some measurements and see where we're at. But then don't necessarily focus on those pieces. Focus on the outcomes. Focus on that journey um, to getting to whatever that goal may be. And then you'll find out it takes a lot of the pressure off from having to meet that you know, scale goal on a daily basis.
2: What are some of the common pitfalls that people will encounter? Oh, there's so many. <laughs>
5: <laughs> you know, the big goal is, is number one, the kind of overextending themselves and then not celebrating those small little successes, I think, too. So, you know, my, my, my goal or my experiment today was to make it to the, the gym five times this week. Oh. But I only made it four. Well, that's impressive. Yeah, but I, I didn't get, you know, I didn't make my goal. So now all of a sudden I've got this kind of negative self-talk. And I'm missing out on the point in celebrating the I made it to the gym four times this week or I made it outside four times this week.
1: Is it a good idea if you're going to start an exercise or a wellness program that you see your physician first? Is there any reason I shouldn't?
5: um, I, I would love for you to go see your physician, absolutely, because there's so much things that we don't know about that's going on inside of our body. You know, I can't tell what my glucose is right now, or if I have high blood pressure. So, getting that little kind of check mark and that little stamp of approval from your physician, I think is very beneficial. And again, you can find some of those kind of baseline numbers, so that when you come back in six months or another, you know, another year, you can again celebrate those small successes, saying, "I went to the gym, I got my exercise session, and I got my movement session in, and look at what it's done to my blood pressure or my glucose." According
2: to my show prep
5: here, 80% of people will have quit their exercise goals by February. Do you agree with that? Yeah, it's unfortunate. And we're trying to change that, right? right. We're trying to get that number down and down and more. And a couple of different things we can do to help that is with everybody else together. So finding an exercise partner is always beneficial. Mm -hmm. Well, you You, got one, don't you? Yeah. No,
2: I'm looking at you because, yes, Jen and I, producer Jen and I, are lifting partners. We lift together, but we are about to become your accountability people because you are going to come with us.
1: Well, yeah, I'll be there in February because it won't be so busy.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That is true. All right, what are some other ways that we can flip that and be part of the 20% instead of the 80%?
5: Well, finding something you really enjoy. So a lot of people say, well, I have to go to the gym again today. And reframing that and saying, well, not only do I get to go to the gym, I'm going to go do something enjoyable. So whether that's listening to an audio book, popping in front of Netflix, you know, where you're on the treadmill, finding something that you enjoy and doing it consistently is more important than, you know, getting on the treadmill and running for five miles. You know, that's not, not for everybody, but finding something that you really enjoy is, I think, the most important piece when you do and choose to go do some exercise. When you uh,
1: outline a program for somebody, do you base it on how long they have to exercise or do you say, you know what, we got to at least start with 20 minutes or how, how do you decide how long it's and really, what's enough?
5: Yeah. So the, the current recommendation right now is about 150 minutes of movement throughout the week. And so again, 149 minutes, you're probably doing okay. But, you know, if you can only do five minutes a day or 10 minutes a day, that's still so much better than if you can't do any at all. And we know from research that people who are still struggling with the scale are obese and and overweight, those people that exercise are actually much better off when it comes to their overall health and fitness than the people that are skinny and don't do any exercise. So every little bit does help. If you've been someone who gets
2: 0% of that 150 per week, maybe starting that high is not
5: where you want to go. Correct. So kind of slowly, you know, increasing it over time is wonderful. So maybe it comes back down to, I'm going to exercise for one minute today. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to jump on the treadmill for one minute. Probably when you're there, you're going to say, well, one minute was pretty easy. I can probably <laughs> add a couple more. And that's my little sneaky way of, you know, increasing your overall exercise. I kind of like that. Yeah. There was a, for a long time, about a 10% rule is you don't want to increase your overall kind of activity level greater than about 10%. But research has really shown that We don't necessarily need to adhere to that as much. So what's the best
2: tip that you have used to help people, something that you find that works for a lot of your clients?
5: I would say overall is finding what you like to do and then keep doing it. So we are lucky that we get to see people who are over 80, 90 years old. And you ask them, you know, you're you're still here, number one, which is wonderful. But number two, what's your secret for success? And it really is, well, I don't go out and run a marathon every single day, but I do go out and walk for 20 minutes or 30 minutes and i do that most days of the week
1: how often do you have someone come up to you and say i can't thank you enough i feel so much better and i've lost x amount
5: of pounds i bet you have I bet that's fairly frequent isn't it? I'm very frequent yes to uh, and i want to toot my own horn but yes it is it is wonderful to hear those accolades that we get and that's what really kind of propels us in the fitness industry to kind of keep going is those kind of constant success stories that we do here all right.
1: Well, keep up the good work, and we'll see you at the huh.
5: <laughs>
1: We've been talking about ways to get moving and to be healthier in the new year with Tom Rick of the Mayo Clinic Healthy Living Program. Thanks for joining us, Tom. Thank you so much for having me. That's our program this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCrae. Thanks for joining us.
0: Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a health care professional. For more information, please go to our website,